knowing when you see innovation working, either in an, in an organisation adapting to start-up, uh, or a, even just a creative new approach to storytelling. Uh, and at the Walkleys, we want to see more of it and be part of more of it. We want to be at the forefront of exploring new models and techniques to sustain great Australian journalism. We know that Australians still value quality journalism, and if we can help journalists feel empowered to experiment and back their ideas, uh, then we'll find new ways of making journalism that can be part of the solution. Uh, that's why we established the Walkley Grants for Innovation in Journalism, and later today we'll be announcing the 20 long-listed projects who will compete for a pool of $70,000. Uh, I must say we're very thankful to our partners Google and Copyright Agency Limited for making that possible. But before you find out who those 20 are, we've got to talk about what innovation in journalism can look like in our day-to-day -day work. Uh, and through this new program we've launched, Future Fridays, uh, the Walkley team are looking forward to bringing you uh, insights and practical takeaways from the world of journalism as it is changing. Uh, from the latest tools to classic techniques, Future Fridays uh, we hope will be a great way to brush up on your professional skills, get inspired and network. Now, turn your phones to silent, or, uh, but don't turn them off, because you should, should feel free to keep the discussion online with the hashtag hash Future Fridays and hash Walkleys. Uh, now, today we're going to start by taking a look at the Australian media and what innovation means in that context. What newsrooms, companies or individuals are taking the leaps? What can we learn from other newsrooms around the world? What can we do to be more innovative? Uh, now, first of all, we're going to hear from the Sydney Morning Herald's innovation editor, uh, and innovation in itself, uh, Stephen Hutchin. Uh, Stephen's a former editor of the Herald's website and a former foreign editor. His work's a foreign correspondent in Beijing and returned there in 2008 to cover the Olympics. He was a member of three Walkley Award-winning teams and a former fellow at the Joan Shorenstein Centre for Press, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Will you please welcome Stephen Hutchin. Thanks, Chris. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, now, I'm apparently the warm-up act for um, uh, Johnny Richards from Google, who's coming up later. So uh, I thought I'd just uh, take you through... First of all, the eagle-eyed people will notice that when I was in the room earlier, my shirt was tucked in. And I decided if I'm going to give a talk on innovation, the shirt should be out. <laughs> so um, uh, that's, that's, that's why that explains the change. Um, so yes, as Chris said, I'm the first hopefully not the last, innovation editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, and that, of course, uh, is, is, a, is a digital role that was created. I, I report to the editor-in-chief. Um, but I'm, I'm one of many people in the organisation working on kind of um, trying to free up the creative juices so that we can do different things. Uh, I, told, I told this to someone today. I was, um, again, as part of my role, I was introducing this morning some of our infrastructure tech guys um, to the newsroom, uh, letting them sit in on, or stand in on the morning conference, meet uh, the mobile editor, meet one of the trainees we've um, uh, recently brought on board. And the reason was because even though these guys work one floor below us, they have no idea, or very little idea, about what they're doing. They're, they're the guys who keep the website humming. I also found out there's a couple of them who are willing to help if um, when asked. So I had a, a little idea, it's not really an idea, but a little idea uh, early this year 
or late last year, to create a little tool to um, build a meme for social uh, posts. So basically, there's, there's quite a few of them in open source. You drag a picture in, you put a bit of writing over it, and you attach it to your post. The idea being that uh, posts with pictures attract much more engagement than those without. Um, uh, as I said, this was open source. So I found someone in this group who was, they deal with infrastructure, kind of begin to explain what that is, but they basically keep the website humming. Uh, you know, when we get massive traffic, they make sure that the traffic is distributed to different servers, it's all hosted in the cloud, and, um, and, and, and amongst other things, that's what they do. So I found someone there who was able to help us out because the level of um, uh, technical expertise in the newsroom is, is still pretty low. Uh, anyway, they, they turn it around and as a, as a sort of payback or whatever, I decided to invite them to visit the newsroom today to get a little bit better understanding of what they do. And after that, I'm going to go back and hit them up for new things because now they've um, met, some, met some more people, met some journalists and understand a bit more about what we're trying to do in the newsroom. And I guess that is one of my, it's not my, you know, um, it's not in my job description, but the advantage, and I was about to tell you something when I uh, detour it, I told them this morning I had been there 33 years. And I've been there 33 years but doing a multitude of different jobs. But in the past three years, there has never been as much change um, over that time. And so I think that's really freed up uh, a lot of thinking about what we can do. In the past, big organizations, uh, if you read any of the literature, they're very, not so nimble to change. I mean, I, I think the ABC is in a different category, maybe because they're publicly funded. I'm pointing at Nick Ross here. Um, you know, they've done some really good things with their innovation team. But of course, they don't have to pay so much attention to the commercial side. So while it's good to fling things up on the wall, if you fling, fling too much up and it doesn't stick and it doesn't pay for itself, you're going to find yourself um, out of business, short of funds, or, or both, or all of the above. Um, so anyway, that, 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 was a, that was a small example of uh, what I'm trying to do, because I've been there a while. I, can, I know uh, I'm, I'm reasonably good at internally networking, so I know this person who can do that and this person who can do that. And that's bringing, bringing people with like ideas together, who are much smarter than me on the technical front. And if you excuse the vernacular, getting shit done. In fact, I saw that in one of the roles advertised for, it was either audience development or innovation on looking through, um, uh, uh, where was it, on one of the US sites, a job title for someone at Fusion, and one of the requirements was getting shit done. Um, in a big organization, again, it's incredibly difficult to, um, to get through the bureaucracy. Um, again, we, we've made big strides in that. Uh, give you a small example. It took me about two months to get a new phone ordered. Uh, I heard an anecdote about a photographer in one of the uh, rural um, uh, publications uh, who wanted a new lens for his camera, and it took 14 signatures. Don't please don't tweet this, by the way. <laughs> uh, took 14 signatures to uh, to get that approved. Um, so really, even from the top down, the company is in 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 the mindset of making things easier to do, and so we can get this this stuff down. Um, now, so if I, I'm going to leave um, time at the end for questions, and I've, I'm not, if Jackie or someone can let me know when I should shut up and, yep. Yeah.
Um, so I'm going to start with a... If I had slides going, it would be a slideshow of my great trip last year. Um, but a few of us went on a trip um, to the United States and the UK last year. So the, don't have the Mac attachment, so you'll have to let me build word pictures in your mind. Um, went on a trip to the United States and the UK last year. And we did it principally, principally because in this um, country, obviously, there's <coughs> most people we feel we're in competition with. And the culture of sharing and being more open is perhaps not as um, given as when you go overseas. So we went to, um, uh, we did, what did we do? Uh, 31 meetings in eight working days. It was pretty fast paced. Some days there were five meetings. Uh, and we visited companies like ourselves, the mainstream, whatever you call them, heritage, legacy, um, publishers like uh, San Francisco Chronicle, which is owned by Hearst, which was, again, don't, don't say the new way of saying it, don't tweet me on this, but uh, was a bit like stepping back into the uh, Citizen Kane movie set. Um, big sort of veneer, wooden walls, desks piled high with, um, with books and files and things like that. Um, and, but they were also in the same process that we're in. We went to uh, magazines like Wired, Mother Jones, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, Financial Times. We also visited a lot of the uh, startup companies, um, publishers like Medium in San Francisco, which is founded by one of the Twitter founders. Um, and by the way, if, I, I, my understanding is there's a few students here. We've never tried Medium as a platform. It's a very interesting platform to try out. Um, David Carr, the late uh, media columnist for the New York Times who taught a class at Boston University used Medium as his class's um, platform for publishing content on. Um, but we visited Medium, we visited uh, Quartz in, uh, in New York, which is the financial website that is a spin-off of Atlantic. Um, it's what someone described as what The Economist would look like if it was invented today. We visited the Huffington Post, which we're very happy to be in a partnership with. Uh, and that was before the partnership. Um, and numerous other organizations uh, like that, um, that uh, Politico in, in Washington, D.C. And what we found was, again, I think the, the U.S., not to be too, not to uh, carry too much cultural baggage on this, but the U.S. is always a little bit ahead of the curve on this kind of stuff. And not surprisingly, because, uh, you know, you look at the Washington Post, they have now, uh, they went for the... Uh, the, the, the sugar daddy model of journalism, where they find a very rich investor in the face of in the um, in the face of Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, and he's um, he's instituted a remarkable change there. It was again the Washington Post is still in that Watergate era building uh, in downtown D.C., um, but they've got a huge development team in uh, New York City, where they find it easy to get developers. Uh, their journalists are talking the talk and doing the thing, and you can see that they're, 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 the, the scope of their content now is much wider than it used to be. And it used to be a kind of inside the beltway um, type, uh, that is, you know, inside DC type thing, um, newspaper, and they're really expanding their horizons now to become, to attempt to become more of a national paper. In fact, they're building a content management system which they hope to sell to other people. Because that is the other thing we found out when we visited BuzzFeed. Um, 
journalism these days is not so much about your ability to write a story, it's about, um, that is one element, but it's how you package your story, the technology you build it on, uh, which also gives you ability, ability to share what you create. And uh, I know there's a, a few people who will turn their noses up at some of the things uh, BuzzFeed does, uh, the, the listicle for instance, um, but I think they're a great model for where the future journal of journalism is going, which doesn't mean you have to do listicles, which doesn't mean you have to do you know, stories on what colour the dress was, although very, very popular, obviously, that, that story. But it does mean that you give your journalists the tools within the browser to do their own thing. Um, so they created this really very cool slidey tool um, in the browser, which allows them to do uh, befores and afters. Um, of, you might have seen them. They're quite prevalent on the web. You know, you'll see during the World War One anniversary, here's a picture of um, the, cathedral at, uh, the cathedral at Ypres, pronounce that correctly, you know, in World War One, and here it is now, and you can do that. But they've actually, I can't begin to describe it, they've actually done, they've taken that whole thing further, and what it's done is, because the technologists have given the journalists the tools, the journalists have come up with the ideas on how to adapt this. Um, it, is, it is a kind of, um, it's a kind of a hack of what this was meant to be. And in my view, uh, and, and that's what I've I guess that's that's a lot of thing I've, I've been doing over the years is you know hacking things, trying to make things work where they're not supposed to work, and but then but then yeah, getting them to work and then you've done something. And I always think of a hack as a simple thing as I've watched my kids when they're younger, you know, running up a slide instead of sliding down a slide, and that's a hack. You know, they've just completely destroyed the, the, the whole thing of the gravity <laughs> bringing people down, and they've decided to go up. So um, that's the another another element of what I wanted to mention is that. Um, innovation doesn't have to be, you know, I don't have to build the next Facebook or, uh, you know, uh, or anything like that, or the next BuzzFeed. It's small, it's small innovations within the workplace, and there can be process innovations. There can be just a simple way to do this thing better than we did it before um, that yields results. So um, I think I'm, I think I've pretty good at smaller innovations, none of which I'm going to, you know, blow my trumpet about because some of them are so small they seem uh, insignificant, but they have made changes. Um, now, I did mention, uh, I mentioned the, the Washington Post and the whole idea of getting, um, uh, you know, the technology and getting that up to steam, um, but also, as I explained earlier on, bringing those uh, tech guys up to date, getting, getting the journalists and the technology people to work closer together. We had one of our meetings was with 538, which is uh, the um, uh, Nate Silver startup with ESPN. So Nate left uh, the New York Times to go in and start this thing up. And um, there, it wasn't Nate, it was uh, Mike Wilson, who was their editor-in-chief, but now he's the, moved to the Dallas Morning Herald. But he was saying to us, you know, it's much easier to train mathematicians to write in English than it is to train English majors to build algorithms or do code. Um, so while they had a sprinkling of um, people who could, you know, who came up through traditional ranks, they were much more um, on the lookout for people with a with a, a mathematical mind or a coding um, a skill for coding who they could then retrain to do some writing if necessary. 
But of course, if you believe that we're entering a post-text world, that may be not as important to be able to, um, you know, avoid splitting infinitives or not ending on a preposition and all those kind of all those kind of no-nos. Um, you know, building a story in code, building a database, doing uh, data journalism um, without the words, uh, creating a video that doesn't need to be supporting a, an article but just stands on its own, um, doing other very cool interactives, that is all the kind of things that newsrooms are trying to do now. Um, and they, they all face uh, a similar problem in having the right skill sets. Shall I keep going, Jackie? Um, I'm conscious of it's yes, 4.30. Sir. We've got a couple more minutes and yep. leave you five to ten minutes for questions. Terrific. Um, so I'll go for a couple more minutes. Um, the, let me jump now to what we're doing. I mentioned earlier that I'm one of only a uh, couple of people uh, at uh, Fairfax, at the Herald, uh, doing things. Um, our, I don't know Matt's full title, but he looks after the graphic designers and the photographers, Matt Martell. He also has um, people on his team who can do some of the interactive things. He's, he's been trying to shift his department, which is rich in people with, um, this is not, this is not um, by any means um, um, meant to be rude, but you know, built up on analog skills. Uh, today I introduced the developers to John Shakespeare, who does an amazing uh, cartoons and caricatures, mostly, still mostly by hand, although John, I'm trying to get John onto Vine and get him to do some interactive, and he's, do, he's done it as well, but Matt Martell's um, thing is to bring on board developers who can also code, so that they can do some of these um, fancier um, interactives um, to go with the articles, or stand on their own, or, or, or database stuff and things like that. Um, we also have, uh, we recently hired David Braithwaite from SBS, who is working with a bunch of, uh, uh, a bunch of the trainees and um, a video guy and um, our two existing data, data um, journalists um, to create sort of medium-term projects. Um, and on top of that, uh, earlier this week I attended a session that we, we've done for a couple of years, but we, it's called, it's actually run by the tech guys and it's called uh, Ignition. And it brings together, we had uh, an ideas jam. So we all went off to a place that is euphemistically called the Bat Cave. And uh, we uh, sat there all afternoon chewing minties and um, to get the creative juices flowing. And we broke into little groups, played silly games to, uh, to uh, feel like we were innovating. And then we each took a task from a big board of uh, ideas and then we came up with ten tasks, we whittled them down to three, we put them on the board, and then the whole team, the whole group, which was must have been uh, 50 plus people, voted on their best uh, idea. And from that we've got eight, and on the eight uh, we will put them up on a more formal internal website, and then people will pitch their ideas to either um, uh, extend them, or maybe pivot them to something else, or, or donate time if they're really interested in it um, to to get it underway. And so that's coming from largely from the technology side, but with a little bit of input from the editorial side. So as I said, as I said earlier, um, the company uh, is uh, what 180 plus years old. Um, the website turns uh, 20 this April, um, and. 
three decades, there, had, there has never been as much change as in the past three years, and, and I hope that keeps going and sustainable, um, and because it's an expensive, uh, it can be an expensive task, it needn't be, uh, and it, but it does take time to, to get those wins on the board. So with that, um, I will throw the floor over to questions. Nick. <laughs> um, who do you reckon is currently the model for online journalism funding now? Uh, many would say it's The Guardian, but The New York Times has got hats in there. Could even be the SMH, do you reckon? Uh, well, look, um, again, I don't want to... I know, I know Johnny's come from The Guardian. We visited The Guardian, had a great session with uh, Alan Rushbridger and Wolfgang Blau, his uh, chief technical guy. Um, the Guardian has this marvellous trust that funds the business, and maybe Johnny will come up and mention that later on, but it, it allows them not to have to make a profit. <laughs> and for an organisation like us that is uh, listed on the stock exchange, we have to, I know we've been losing a bit of money lately, but we, we have to create shareholder value. So that is not a sustainable business, business for us. As I said, the, uh, the Washington Post has Jeff Bezos, the, the New York Times, which again, they, 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 these are outliers in my view, outlier companies that just have access to extraordinarily good luck, extraordinarily large pools of money, um, or in the case of uh, the New York Times, you know, it's kind of, it's more, more of a heritage uh, thing with a, with the, with the kind of type of ownership of the company anyway. Um, we can't model ourselves on them because we can't recreate that core that core funding. We happen to be a, you know, a publicly listed company with a d diverse share ownership that could be gobbled up at any time. Um, so we can't do that. Um, obviously, it'd be great to be a BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed and some of the other companies we saw, like Vox Media. I think you know BuzzFeed valued at 800 million. BuzzFeed, Buzz, uh, Vox Media, which owns a string of sites, about 450 million. Um, you know, that's the difference in the U.S., right? If you, if you, I, I know it's a Google thing. I was talking to him the other day, but there's just not that volume of um, money here, as you, as you will know, for pitching your idea to to fund that kind of journalism. Um, so, I don't know what the gold standard is for a mainstream, you know, established organisation, um, but uh, if you find it, please let us know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, one of the uh, great things that people hear about Google is that their employees have sort of this 80-20 program where they spend 80% of their time on you know what their employees do, yeah. and another 20% of their time on sort of more of a personal project. Do you think that maybe an idea like that has merit in sort of uh, mainstream newsrooms where maybe journalists could you know, spend a bit of time Def trying to innovate themselves? Yeah, definitely. Um, um, as I said, that this innovation um, jam that we had the other day will result in people donating their time to do something. Um, the great thing about being part of the Fairfax Sydney Morning Herald organisation is that people believe in the product, and that was part of the exercise today to get developers upstairs to understand what we are trying to do to infuse in them that same kind of um, uh, you know, belief in the mission. I don't want to overdo it, but you know what I mean? You have to believe in the product. And um, so that small product I mentioned earlier, the Memefire, was a result of somebody donating their time to do it. And 
in Google is more institutionalized. Um, we're having a go at it. I mean, my time, to some extent, here today, I'm donating my time because I feel um, I think it's important to, and I always mispronounce this word, prototize um, the the kind of things that we're trying to do, and share ideas because that's the other part of the the <coughs> whole shtick that um, you get so much more out of sharing ideas. Um, I sat down before this, about an hour before this, with a guy in um, content marketing, and we were rabbiting on about a few things, and we came up with what I thought was a great idea for something that we will now take to pitch to uh, somebody down the track. But it only comes from from meeting people, talking to people, meeting diverse people. Um, you know, and again, I'm, I've written for a long time about technology companies. Um, the whole Apple thing, Jobs built the floor plan so that people would constantly bump into other people, and uh, especially so at Pixar as well. It, you know, he, he put cafeterias in a certain place to make people from different sections end up in that same place so they could talk and share ideas. And um, and uh, long-winded answer to your question, but that it, that's a long part. That's that's a long story. Um, I think it's one thing when you've got a news organization like us, you know, like a newspaper where it's quite fast-paced, it's people used to be very reactive and people are used to um, things turning on a dime, and so if you say to people, okay, we're going to change this thing, then there's maybe a certain acceptance of, okay, yes, we have to change. But mm. if you're from a media organization that's maybe not as, doesn't have that pace to it, mm. if it's a bit more slow-moving or a particular Uh, well, it is true that um, um, you know the other part. Of the, I forgot to mention but the other part of this whole thing is that we are currently uh, doing a series of boot camps for sections, um, so that um, I would give a talk as, as I did this week to one particular section, saying here's how we do best practice on certain way of doing things. And then I sit with them for the rest of the week, and uh, they use me as a, an internal resource to say, oh, how do you do that again? Because, of course, you sit here talking to people, trying to explain how to do something, and they go away, and maybe it's not clear. But if you're sitting with them uh, for that time and, a, and as a, a, at their disposal, then they're more likely to come and ask you. So that's a month-long immersion thing for each section, and we'll, we'll go on to the next section. Um, that's at the kind of uh, basic level. But all this kind of thing I've been talking about could not happen unless there was a, um, a belief from higher up and a, this, the right signals from higher up that this is what should be done. So, you know, I'm not suggesting in the past that there were not those signals, but they weren't as strong as they are now. And maybe it's because of the time and place that we're in. I'm doing a we, you know, as a whole. Um, maybe it's because they see what's happening elsewhere. But as I said, the signals are strong. The message is loud and clear. Um, do it now, um, and um, do it often. <laughs> Was it?
Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask, I know a lot of innovation in media organisations comes from like corrupt teams who maybe are working on things yeah. like RSVP or whatever. Is there any, because you're just saying you're talking about developers, but to me it would make sense to bring in corrupt teams perhaps in yes. to workshop. Indeed, you are absolutely teams. right. So I think we've already breached that gap with product now. Product, uh, the reporting lines were changed uh, last year. Um, you know, I cycle home with the chief, chief product manager. We're, we're all very close already. Uh, it's the more the developers that we need to sort of bring on board as well. But you're absolutely right. The, the whole message we got from that trip was um, product, tech, and editorial working together uh, for a common cause to to execute you know the aims of, of the business. So that that is certainly happening again a lot more than say two years ago. And is that a matter of changing work processes as well? Because I know those guys would be working more in like an agile kind of environment, which I know is becoming quite fashionable for all sorts of different people that learn from tech developers and the way they work. The the product people? Yeah. Yeah, no definitely. So agile is this sort of uh, iterate quickly and move on, build MVPs and I mean that whole that whole speak has infiltrated the newsroom now. So, you know, everybody's talking, like, you don't talk about first drafts, you talk about MVP of my story or something like that. You know, or I pivoted the story instead of changed the angle. So I think that's quite infused in now into the culture of the newsroom. And um, uh, the product people sit with us. Uh, we have regular meetings with them. Not, not every, uh, every journalist, but the editors have regular meetings with them. We make sure that they're in the loop when we do big things like for Anzac Day, we say invite the product guys in, even though it's largely an editorial play, it's not a, doesn't have any, um, any advertising, you know, spin-off. Um, but yes, it is, it is important to do that as well. I saw a question over here, yeah. You mentioned um, that journalism not just now, it's not just about writing a story. And yeah. from what I understand, from what you said, it's, let's say, about delivering the story or reaching out for the audience. And you gave example of BuzzFeed and others. Do you think that journalism in the future, when we say future, like let's say 5, 10, 15, whatever the future would be, uh, journalism going to be redefined and the gap between the old generation of journalists and us and the, the new journalists will have, like, won't have any inter like, transition between both of them because they can, let's say, they have, they are used to write the long-form articles with mm. why and all these things. Mm. Now it's just visuals more and something more attractive, videos and small paragraphs and something yeah. like this. So this is the first question. From this question, a small second question, which is how you can apply the new technology and the new interactivity between the story and the platform and the audience in radio. In radio? Yeah. Because you don't have anything to do other than just playing something to hear. Yeah. So how you can attract more and how you can improve journalists mm. who works in radio? Well, I'll take the radio part first because I'm, I'm not a radio person. I mean, I note with interest the upsurge in interest in podcasts. You know, you've probably all heard about serial and things like that. The rise of the connected car, uh, where you know, Google and Apple building out uh, connected devices within cars so that things start when you get in. Uh, that is obviously going to, it's the same as TV in a sense, that it'll, be, it'll move, I believe, more to on demand rather than tuning into a particular show at, 
that particular time. I, radio in my very brief, I mean, I don't, I don't have a deep knowledge of radio, but it has limited ability to... Um, of course, all radio stations now have websites, and they do video on their websites. And we own, we own Fairfax owns radio stations as well. So um, if, if I were to guess, it would be their radio stations become more um, across the board, just like newspaper companies or print companies moved into video. You know, that's, that's the way I see it for radio. But as I said, I'm not an expert on radio. On the first part of your question, if I can remember, it's a connection between the old and the new. I think it's a I think it's a mistake to think the like old style journalism is all about long form and new style journalism is about you know tweets and um, and uh, cat cat gifs and things like that. I I think there will be a combination of both. I mean again, I don't want to sound like I'm uh, waving the flag for Buzzfeed, but they've hired a lot of um, established journalists. They've got um, foreign correspondents. They've recently hired here for a, a reporter to cover Indigenous affairs. I mean. You know, there's not not gonna, that's that's a that's a serious that's a serious round. Um, so <laughs> I've always believed that the cheesy stuff supports the good stuff. If you're on the web, the web, and you're a commercial organisation, you are beholden to the advertisers, and the advertisers look at page impressions. So if you want to play in that game, you have to do the things that make the traffic. But if you're a mainstream, uh, you know established organisation, you have to do the serious stuff as well. Um, and you have to find ways to make people read the serious stuff that is not just clickbait. I think Chris is um, going to wind me up. I'm wind you up. And yeah. uh, thank you very much, Stephen, for that. I'm now going to hand you over the next presentation about multimedia storytelling from Jonathan Richards. Uh, John is a former Guardian journalist, now at Google's Creative Lab here in Sydney where he works on projects which explore new ways to create compelling user experience on the web. Uh, previously, it was The Guardian in London, where he ran the interactive team, uh, which included a group of designers, developers, filmmakers, and editors producing bespoke editorial content and apps, including the Walkley-winning Firestorm. Uh, before that, he worked at The Times. He lectures on new forms of storytelling around the world and was one of the founders of Hacks and Hackers in London. Would you please welcome Jonathan Richards? Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Um, thank you very much for coming. It's a great pleasure being here. I was thinking just before I started that I've done uh, several challenging things in my career, but I've never had to present at 4.45 on a Friday afternoon <laughs> as everyone is desperate to begin their weekend. So um, thank you very much for, um, for agreeing to listen. Um, I have a short presentation um, called, uh, oh, we might nearly be there, called 11 Things That I've Learned um, About Digital Journalism. So I just thought I could um, run you through a couple of the lessons um, that I feel I've sort of acquired in, in my time involved with, with journalism. Um, I began my career as a, as a print reporter at the Times in London. Um, I worked in the features section and moved on to arts and then eventually found my way into technology reporting, so I was writing about technology and it was in the process of doing that that I became quite interested in the technology um, itself. Um, so in 2008 I had the opportunity to set up the first data journalism unit at the Times, um, which was great fun, and actually began reprogramming quite seriously as a, as a, as a developer, um, so I started to learn um, about code and started writing code and using code in my journalism, and towards the uh, 
end of that, that time I moved to The Guardian where I um, helped run the interactive team um, from about 2011 to 2013. And in the time since then, I've um, joined Google and I'm a member of this um, thing called the Creative Lab, which is part of the marketing function of, of Google. But as I said, I, I'm hoping today to focus on um, some things I've learned about digital journalism. And uh, the first of those um, is that done is better than perfect. Um, this was something I learned, unfortunately, a little bit slowly in my time in journalism. But um, as you would know, the news environment works quite quickly. Um, for those of you who've had some experience with digital, digital can feel, rather ironically, you might say that it moves a little bit slowly. Things take longer to develop. Things have to work across multiple platforms. There can be little niggles that stop you um, from time to time. And you can quite often get caught up on making this perfect thing. Um, so actually, this basic impulse that having a version of something that works well, that maybe is not the perfect version, um, is I think a good one to kind of hang on to. So I would sort of, I would start with remembering that. The second thing I'd say is that you should learn uh, just enough about coding. Okay, so this question about should I learn to, I'm a journalist, I'm interested in journalism, should I learn how to code, that comes up quite often. Um, and I think there's no easy answer to that because I think some people take to coding really well. Um, and that's awesome. I found I quite enjoyed it. Um, I like learning, I found a mentor, I got some books, I used online resources. Um, I found it a really quite um, exciting journey to be on, so it worked for me. Um, some people, for whatever reason, it just, they just don't like it as much, um, and that's also fine. If you find yourself in that category of giving a shot and you know, you, for whatever reason it isn't working out, I think it can be useful to know a little bit about it so that you can have conversations with developers. It's a little bit like, you know, to Stephen's point about the importance of the relationship between the editorial and um, digital teams in a, in a journalistic output. Um, that conversation is important, and the more you can speak some of the developer's language, the more fruitful those, those conversations will be, in my experience. So learn just enough um, about coding. The third thing, and it's almost like an adjunct, I would say the second thing, is that I think it's important to learn quite a lot about, about data. I do think data is an important part of the modern journalistic toolkit, and I think it's one of the spheres in which journalism um, uh, organisations have really sort of come into their own in the last little while in terms of finding something that is a fantastic new beat um, to think about and a new lens through which to view the stories that they, they report on. Um, I still feel it's relatively untapped. I think there are some great examples of um, people and organisations who are using data, um, but I think there's a lot more. And actually, the, the more exciting thing possibly is that there's, it's a two-way street, right? There's the ability to use it and manipulate it, and then there's the people who hold um, data that might be of interest to, to journalism, for instance, um, public organisations and, and the like. And in a country like the UK, where I spend a lot of time, that's a relatively progressive place in terms of um, bits of the, the government and the public sector generally making data available. But in other parts of the world, that, that is a slower process. So as that becomes um, easier to do, um, I think more opportunities will arise to report in interesting ways using, using data. And so the ability to um, understand what data is, understand the means by which you can process it and the way you can present it so that it makes sense to a reader in a compelling way um, are important parts, I think, of the, of the modern toolkit. Start a local chapter of Hacks Hackers. Who has heard of Hacks Hackers? One person in the room. Wow. Two people, maybe. Okay. So again? Right, right. Okay. So it's really interesting. It's this group that um, started in America. Um, uh, I think there's about seven or eight chapters in the States now in the large metro centres. Um, we started a version of it in London in about 2007 or 8, I think. The whole point of Hacks Hackers is that it is designed to sit at the intersection between technology and journalism. It's a quite interesting intersection. There are, as it turns out, a lot of people who are in that kind of place. 
Um, it, and in fact, the whole the whole sort of connection between the two words is quite sort of telling in itself. I think um, the fact that there is this uh, spirit which both disciplines share in terms of you know hacking and what it means to hack. Um, so the, the format for that organisation, there is a Sydney chapter, although I must confess I don't know, I, I'm not sure exactly how active it is, um, but if it isn't active, that, that strikes me as a great opportunity to make it active um, again, but there's definitely a chapter here. Um, the format we ran with was that we would do a two-hour sort of um, meeting about once a month. The first hour would be two half-hour talks, um, sort of not unlike this one, and then an hour for sort of networking afterwards. And I can say categorically that it was the most interesting group of people that I came across professionally in my time in London. Like there was there was no other place where it was where you would want to be apart from that if you were interested in this space and what technology meant for the future of journalism. So it'd be wonderful to think there could be a hub like that um, in Sydney. The other thing that people get excited about in the same breath as um, data journalism generally is that it is this very new thing. Um, and I think this idea of remembering that the journalist bit, the reporting bit of data journalism is is fundamental to data journalism. There are a lot of people who can get very excited about huge data sets and what, you know, what, am I, you know, what am I going to do with it. But unless you understand what to look for, if you have those instincts about where the story lies, um, it will just remain a big pile of data. So don't let someone pull the wool over your eyes in terms of going, but I've got this great data and this visualization is amazing and look at it. Unless you can um, fight through, I guess, what is a mass of stuff and work out how to package it in a compelling way, it will just remain a quite sort of flat piece of data. So it's still just a story to be told at the end of the day. Um, Stephen mentioned the New York uh, Times. The New York Times gets mentioned a lot in conversations about the future of um, journalism. They've been a fantastically half-breaking place, um, and there are some people there, interestingly, some of whom have now left who are doing other things. So it feels like some of that um, knowledge that was built up at the New York Times is sort of proliferating a little bit. Um, one sort of caution I guess I would make about it is just that to hold it up as an example um, should be done so in the same breath as acknowledging that it is a very, very unusual place. Um, and so it's not as if you can go, hey, but the New York Times does that, so why don't you know, like that kind of logic doesn't doesn't always work. Even within the states, it's quite special, and then when you consider it in a global context, possibly sort of um, more so. So whilst it's often, you know, and this happened to the Guardian all the time, you know, it, like something that they had just done would get put forward, and, and, and it would almost be like, well, why haven't we done that? Well, there's good reasons why the New York Times is able to do those things. So whatever you do, don't get beat up. That uh, you know, don't get hard on yourself about the fact that it's difficult to reproduce some things that they're they're doing because they're very special. This hopefully should go without saying, so I won't spend a lot of time on this one, but um, suffice to say that in my time at The Guardian in particular, the role of the journalist as someone who um, just um, filed their copy and sent it, and it was for the desk and the paper itself to um, make it sing at large um, and market it, um, had, had pretty much completely turned um, on its head. And actually what you had towards the end were a bunch of um, big reporters who were very interested in cultivating a community of their own around their journalism. Um, in other words, that by the time that I had left, the site had it, it, the tools by which the community was engaged. Um, you know, the commenting platform, the increased sophistication of the commenting platform meant that it was really quite a wonderful sort of dialogue that was able to happen. And I think the journalists there were finding that the um, importance of doing that engagement as well and making that. So in other words, it wasn't just about um, you know research, write and um, publication, or research, produce and publication, but everything that happened sort of after that. So the story had um, a life beyond that kind of publication moment. Which is um, is a is a new-ish thing, but I would say it's very much sort of a right, so worth bearing in mind. 
I'm not quite sure sort of what cross-section of kind of organisations are represented in the room, um, but if there are sort of news organisations here, then maybe some of you will find this familiar. Um, a, uh, uh, someone from a particular desk, let's say the travel desk or something, might come up to you and go, hey, wouldn't it be a cool idea if we did this? Um, and you know, through some of the response, be, yes, that would be that would be a great idea. Um, and then you might talk through a little more. And as you as you begin to talk through it, you realise that this thing that they are proposing is not so much you know a, a a particular piece of journalism, but actually a whole kind of product um, that would require um, you know significant develop resource, probably maintenance in the long term, perhaps a roadmap for future features, um, you know, a, a plan for. Um, how to update it as, pla as platforms on which it was distributed, let's say, you know, Android and iOS, or maybe it's just a web thing, you know, how it evolves to um, meet those changing environments, and very quickly it can become a quite complicated thing. So the ability to kind of detect that in a, in a pitch and work out where the kind of more standalone-ish achievable piece of journalism is with a, with a particular finite outcome that you can achieve quickly versus, you know, this great ongoing product idea and understanding what the two mean. You know, it's not to say that the second part isn't um, interesting. You know, I happen to find it particularly interesting. You know, and you could you could say that, you know, in the early days of um, domain, I guess, when that, you know, started out um, as a kind of um, property listings um, publication, that would have sounded, you know, very much like a um, a product sort of pitch, which it is, um, and you know, fantastically successful um, product at that. Um, but obviously it has required a lot of support and stuff. So just being mindful of that distinction I think is very useful. Learn from your readers. Uh, uh, Stephen talked about the extent to which development um, speak, I guess, or lingo has sort of, uh, infiltrated the, the newsroom these days. Um, and um, you know, so readers, obviously, in the journalistic context, in a, in, a product, in a tech product context, you might tend to think of them as users. And there's this context of user testing, right? So what, you know, how, how does the user interact with my, with my this thing that I'm doing? And I think the same goes with sort of um, readers. This, this is fantastic, you know, there's this nice phrase, kind of feedback is a, is a gift. There, there's this fantastic opportunity that we have now to, to engage with people in a way digitally that we didn't before, and making that an important part of your um, planning for tools of this sort, um, and how you, um, how you improve things and refine them based on that feedback is very um, important. Um, I've still got this slide in there. I, don't, I, I haven't been a big reporter for a little while now, but um, one thing that always amazed me is that at the times was the extent to which people sort of thought that, that Twitter, for example, had like had displaced the importance of, um, of RSS. And I was just thinking before I got up that um, I was reminded of what it was like to be a copy taster. Has anyone ever been a copy taster? Does that term even mean anything to anyone here? So when the news wires were um, aggregated, back in the day, the, the papers would read them all, and they would come in in this very, what these days would look like a very clunky interface, right, with a, a very kind of, you know, row by row set of story uh, headlines, and then in the right-hand panel, like, the kind of the full sort of story. And you could go through very quickly, read the headline, the headline tweaked your interest, you would read the copy or whatever. It was a fantastically ugly and wonderfully efficient um, information display. Um, and I still feel that there's nothing that quite tops RSS for sort of pure information efficiency. So if your task as a beat reporter is to get across every story that's been put out by every publication that is remotely relevant to your beat, um, I guarantee you could probably get across that more quickly with RSS than you could with a social stream of any sort. Um, so I still think it's very important, and there's wonderful readers that can help you do that if you don't do that already. Uh, and my final slide is just that um, it may feel a little bit daunting sometimes that um, that uh, this digital thing is a bit hard to tackle because there's many components to it, right? The way we used to think about it at The Guardian was that there are sort of three kind of key sort of um, cogs. One is a kind of design 
and visual sort of cog, which has to do with the ability to um, represent things clearly um, and efficiently. Um, and that's obviously sort of design kind of skilling, right? Then there was a kind of um, tech piece, which was obviously around whatever build, whatever sort of you know programming was necessary to the story you were trying to tell. Um, and the third piece being the kind of what I would call the sort of storytelling or editorial um, aspect, which was how how do we tell this thing? In what order? What is the most important thing? How does the flow work? What's the beginning, middle, and end? These kinds of sort of things. Uh, and if you can assemble some skills that represent at least those three. I honestly think you can sort of do you know anything that is sort of magical that you would think of as a magical digital journalistic um, experience. So whatever you do, don't get the idea that just because you don't have a large team, these things aren't possible. And actually, you know, the amazing thing about today's skilling, and you know, I've just been learning recently about some of the some of the new degrees that are there. Like you know, University of Queensland has this um, fantastic degree, the exact title of which I've sort of forgotten. But what 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 some of these new um, trainings are doing, and maybe even some of you guys will be more familiar with this. Is sort of bringing together um, two of those three. So in other words, the sort of design and storytelling piece, or um, possibly even more interestingly, the design and the tech piece. Like when those when those skill sets converge in um, one person, I think that's a that's a fascinating place. And I can I can definitely say that the the developer or the programmer who has a visual sensibility is one of the most sort of in demand um, people around um, at the moment. They're they're in they're in short supply. So if you feel like that's a place that is of interest to you. I would encourage you to pursue that because um, that's that's a, that's that's, a, that's an awesome combination. Um, so that's kind of it for me. I've sort of I've sort of shot through it, um, but we're still at, at five o'clock, and I'd very much like to um, thank the Walkley Foundation for the opportunity to to speak. Um, recently, they um, asked me to join their um, advisory board, so I'm also um, sort of speaking in that capacity as well. So if you have any questions relating to the Walkleys or um, how they walk, how they work, I'm very happy to um, answer them if I can as well. But thanks for listening. And I don't know if there's time for questions. We're right on time, so maybe not. But. There's time for questions. Yeah. I realise it was also I'm getting in the way every weekend, so, you know, uh, it feels all right, but that's not it. Yeah. You talk about your team of three can do anything. Yeah. How about if you're a freelancer, you're a team of one. Yep. And you actually don't have your developer, you don't have your designer. So what can freelancers actually do to keep up as well? Because the other thing is, you know, you're in the newsroom, you keep up with the technology, you've got the training, you've got the team. Yeah. If you're outside of that, you're pretty much out in the cold, unless you're going around as some people are with, with their iPhones taking pictures and things, but probably doing a much shallower kind of journalism where they're trying to do everything. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to say that because I, I actually I wouldn't think of it as shallow um, at all. What I would say about the um, the opportunities for freelance journalism is that there are a lot of um, tools that could, you can use to plug into those platforms. So if you take your sort of, you know, your free cog sort of wheel, um, take something like visual. You know, maybe you think about a visual component like a map being important, or maybe you think about a visual component like a like a chart being important in a story you might want to write because it's illustrating um, some data that you that you have. There are obviously tools that um, freelancers, anyone can use to sort of do that. And it, it relates a little bit to that point I was making about done is better than perfect. There may be a more beautiful way to present data if you had the services of a, um, a graphic designer or whatever. But that's not to say that um, a tool like you know, AmpCharts or, or Google Charts or the many others that are out there can't do a great job of visualizing data simply and quickly and in a way that which allows you to embed it in your site. Um, and you know, I guess the same sort of goes for photography. I mean, Apple's, Apple has a whole campaign running at the moment that is about just how powerful the iPhone 6 camera 
is. So, you know, I would say, you know, it's open to any freelance journalist to go and take fantastic um, sort of photography um, with tools of that sort, right, without professional... I guess, I guess when I talked about shadow, I mean, you, can, you cannot be taking photographs and writing at the same time, and, you know, you, you can't do everything at once. Right. So you actually tend to do it sequentially. Yep. If you do an in-depth yeah. That's a really interesting. It's a really interesting question, that, and I guess in a lot of this turns on the story, right? Which which you think are going to be the compelling elements in a particular story that you're um, undertaking. So you know, a lot of people might say if you're doing an interview and it's about a person and you're trying to capture that person, then it would be important to be able to take a photograph and allow the reader to kind of see that person that you're writing about. Certainly most magazines and newspapers would, would agree with that. Um, so it's, I guess it's a, a matter of working out how you structure that time of your interview so that you are have, being able to do a bit of both. It's, I guess it's not about being able to do them at the same time, but to work out what's important to sort of tick off in the time you have and use the tools that are available to you to do that to the best of your ability. Talking about teams and putting it in the context of freelancers trying to maybe take on some of these skills, what about the idea of people collaborating and yeah, definitely. So that, like that exact nexus, is what Hacks and Hackers was all about. And in fact, there was this fantastic sort of, um, basically, networking sort of thing. But it often took the form of a kind of idea exchange. You know, maybe a journalist was there and didn't know how to build a thing. Or oftentimes, what you get is a set of developers who are really interested in the news of the news cycle. And um, I, certainly, my experience with UK-based developers was that they they often had a much better insight into the data that was available than the journalists did because they followed the news about about what, you know, what data sets were being released and they were on the right kind of mailing list. So I would encourage you to think of the Sydney-based, if you're Sydney-based, the Sydney-based developer um, community as, as one that is interested in storytelling and that oftentimes needs um, a bit of a hand to know how to package things, which is where the skilling, the more traditional skilling of the journalist kind of kicks in. Great. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks, So I know some of you are waiting nervously, so we'll get on to the final part of the afternoon. And um, I'm talking about the Walkley Grants for Innovation in Journalism. And shortly we'll announce the long list for the promising projects, the 20 promising projects that will go on to the development workshops in late April, and then on to compete for the, um, the pool of $70,000. Uh, thanks again to Google and the Copyright Agency for supporting the grants. I'm also proud to announce a new partnership providing even more support and resources to our innovation program, and that's the, our new legal partner associated with the Walking Innovation Program, General Standards Startup Lawyers, and Kurt is here with us. So. If anyone wants to get any um, quick free advice, talk to Kurt. And no, I mean, seriously, we're really very pleased to have general standards on board. I mean, just helping us through some of those kind of legal questions that, that we face, you know, in, in um, setting up our own businesses. Okay, so I'd like to ask Johnny to come back up and help us announce the long list. Uh, we had a. We I was joined by three fabulous judges um, representing business, technology, and media in Australia and um, the US. The judges were James Kirby, who's the managing editor of uh, the Eureka Report and also works for the Australian newspaper, but actually has that experience of setting up, you know, the Eureka Report 
and uh, Business Spectator that was then sold for a fortune onto News Limited, so experience in more ways than one, uh, and who, of course, has been on the Walkley Advisory Board for the past three years. Uh, Ramin Mazbani, who's a leading technology, internet and financial services analyst. And from the US, we had Jigar Mehta, who's a digital entrepreneur. He was the co-founder of Matter, um, which is one of the prominent incubators in, um, in Silicon Valley. And at the moment, he's the head of engagement at Al Jazeera Plus, AJ Plus. Okay, so um, Stephen has the has a list, so if you can do four each, sure. and they'll they'll appear on here as well. And then there's a long there's a press release available um, after the announcement with more details. So okay, so excuse the pronunciation, Yara Boumelhem with Ur Stories. Okay, so Karina uh, Brindley and team with Elevate Business Leaders Forum, uh, Giordana Caputo and Nicola Joseph with Producers Marketplace and Chart Collective team with Chart Collective. Then we have uh, Jay Cooper, Nick Cooper, and Veronica um, Rich for Ismo.io, Eve Fisher for Student News Online, Charlotte Harper with Odisha, and Nicola Harvey and Naima Lynch for the Foundry Network. Um, so the next slot is uh, Andrew Hunter, Hal Crawford, and Dom uh, Filipovic with Lycolytics, um, Christopher Lawson with Co Porter. Kui uh, Min Lu, uh, Gabriel Clark with Radio with Pictures, that might answer your question. <laughs> uh, and Rose Powell, one of one of our trainees with Newscrawler. We have um, Courtney Sanders and Laura Jade Harris with My Catalog, Bonnie Shaw and her team with Make It Mobile, uh, a team from Smart Company uh, with the From Refugee to Entrepreneur um, project, Melissa Sweet and the Crokey team for Crokey, and then Sue Swinburne, Dr. John Shearer, and Dr. Patrick Dickinson for Droplet. Um, and the last three, um, Alexandra Wake and Barbara Hegan with Hyperlocal Cinema, Bev Wilkinson with Celebrate Living History, and Judy Wilkinson with AustraliaMediaFirst.com. Well done. Congratulations to those 20 projects. I know the judges had a really tough time whittling it down to, to, that, to, to that group. Um, and those 20 projects will go on to attend a development workshop, as I mentioned, in, in late April. So thanks again, congratulations, and I hope you'll stay around for drinks. Okay. Um,